We've been exploring the parables of Jesus in a series we've called Backstory, and we're trying to, trying to look to see a little bit of what's behind the scenes in these parables. Now, today's parable of the two debtors is a pretty short parable, but it is set in the midst of, uh, of an incredible live-action drama at this dinner. And so there's, there's a lot of things that are going on that are behind the scenes that when we understand them, it adds a fullness and a meaning to, to the parable that Jesus is trying to teach us. Well, the place I want to begin today, though, is by having you think about your own life, your own heart, and I want you to answer this question, um, not necessarily out loud, you can if you want to, but it's more introspective. What are your labels? When you think about your life, what are the things that maybe it was something that your mom or dad said when you were young? Maybe it was a classmate at school said something that shamed you, that hurt you? Maybe it's some act or event in your life, some sin that you've created. When you look at it, it's hard for you to see yourself without seeing that label. Here in this story, we see that the woman is not given a name, but she is recognized by the fact that she has been sinful. Most of the commentators and scholars believe that really what that's saying is that she lived a life of prostitution. And some of the details of the story would add credence to that, would, would confirm that most likely that's what she had done. But I want you to notice something here in the story, as well as in the other stories of, of the gospel, the encounters of Jesus, Jesus does not see labels. Jesus never met a prostitute. He never met a tax collector. Yes, he's fully aware of their sin and of my sin, but he does not see the label. Because Jesus came to die for you and for me so that he could take those labels away and give us a new name, a new reputation, a new righteousness to clothe us in himself. So he never saw a label. When Jesus looks at you and me, he sees past the label of our sin. He sees a person he died for, and he sees what we could become. He sees who he created us to be and who he died for us to become. Have you ever wondered how Jesus the only perfect person in history managed to attract sinners who would have otherwise never stepped into a religious event. They wouldn't have gone to the temple. Chances are they would be uncomfortable stepping into, into a church. How is it that the perfect one, the holy one, the one who never sinned was able to do that? And that's an important question because we, as his followers, as his church, need to do the same thing. The truth is, churches should be filled with people just like this woman who came to a dinner. But oftentimes, we don't look enough like Jesus and act enough like Jesus for them to feel welcome. Jesus 
sees the masterpiece waiting to be restored. He looks at you, he looks at me, he looks at others and sees past the sin to the beautiful masterpiece waiting to be restored. But for us, one of the things that keeps us from being like Jesus is that we tend to be brand name sin watchers. You have a brand, I have a brand, okay? It's kind of like you have Coke people and you have Coke Zero or Coke Light or Diet Coke, depending on what part of the planet you're from, and these two do not meet, okay? You know, if you're this person, you're, you would be absolutely desperate if you had to drink this one. Yeah. yeah see, my <laughs> wife will attest to that fact because this would be my wife and this would be me. So, or actually, I'm Mountain Dew, but that's neither here nor there. So, but we do the same thing with our sin. We have sins that are respectable, but there's other sins, there are other things, there are other, if I'm using my illustration, there are other drinks that we think, oh, I'm not going anywhere near a Cafola. <laughs> I happen to really like Cafola, especially on tap, but my wife considers it a sin. So <laughs> she is a brand name Cafola hater, just so you know, pray for her. So would, would you... Yeah, sorry. Anyway, we do the same thing with our sins. It's just we put labels on them. And that's what we see actually happening here in this story. The people gathered at the dinner see this woman, and all they see is her brand name label of sin. And they, of course, have no recognition of their own. We all have different brands, and we like to look down on the sins of others. But in truth, there are really only two kinds of sinners. There are law-breaking sinners, those whose actions show that they are not living up to God's commands, like the woman who's, who's recognized as a sinful woman. And then there are law-behaving sinners, those who maybe they have seemingly more respectable sins because they're often in their hearts but their attitudes prove that their heart is actually very far from God. Simon, as the Pharisee is identified by Jesus, is this kind of sinner. He's this kind of debtor. On the outside, his actions look like he's doing what is right, but his attitudes reveal a heart that is very, very far from God. And there is a real spiritual danger to all of us when we look over, or excuse me, overlook our respectable sins, because in God's eye, there is no such thing. The things that are hidden in our heart are just as vile and separate us from God just as much as the worst actions we can imagine. With both law-breaking and law-behaving sinners, Jesus refused to see the label, however. He saw the person. He saw not what they had done. He saw who they could become through faith in him. He saw that masterpiece waiting to be restored. So let's look at this a little more closely here, beginning in verse 36 of chapter 7. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. In those days, 
You would have low couches that you would kind of, you would lay on, you would lean up on one shoulder, there'd be a table there where the food was. It was a very relaxed setting. But also, um, in those settings, it would be very common for people in the community who were not invited to kind of be around the outside of the room, around the perimeter. And they might get some leftovers. They would, more than anything, they'd get to hear the conversation of what was going on there at the dinner. And there was many people that came, including this woman, who wanted to see and hear what Jesus would say. So that's the setting that we have here. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. Now, I want you to think about that statement for a moment. Her label, her reputation is well known. Everybody in the community knows who she is and what she has done, and yet she has the boldness to go right into one of the Pharisees, one of the religious leaders who would condemn him, right into his house. That should give us a clue that something amazing has happened to this woman, something transformational. She learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him, um, behind his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man, speaking of Jesus, were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. He would know her labor, her label, that she is a sinner. In Simon's eyes, the Pharisee, this woman was a disgrace. It is most likely, as I said, that she had been a prostitute, her reputation was damaged, and all that the host could see was her label. She was not the kind of woman that you would invite to a scholarly banquet. She came because she wanted to see Jesus. And what is implied in the text is that she had already had an encounter with him. She had already been changed, and she wanted to be in his presence. She entered the room, I believe, I believe it's implied in the text, as a forgiven woman. She's not forgiven because she loved him, but because she was forgiven, her natural expression was to love Jesus. But what happens when we understand Jewish culture is that she sees Jesus is being humiliated by Simon. Simon is, is committing what would be close to an unpardonable sin within Middle Eastern culture and certainly within Jewish society. Hospitality is incredibly important in the Middle East. If you are inhospitable, if you are rude to your guests, your reputation will be damaged beyond compare. It's one of the worst things that you can do. But here's this woman, most likely a prostitute, and one of the reasons why they, they think that is true is because oftentimes what would happen is they, uh, prostitutes would wear um, a jar of perfume around their neck on a cord. It was part of their trade. This is a culture where you didn't, you didn't have baths every day or showers every day. And so 
you would make yourself smell good by perfume. And oftentimes it was a practice there amongst those in that particular profession. Our text tells us that she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house in verse 37. So she went to his house uninvited, knowing she would not be well received. And we're told that she begins to weep. The first thing that she does is she starts to cry. We should be asking, why is she crying? There's probably a few few reasons that are possible, but I believe what fits best within the text, and especially within the backstory that we're going to see in a moment, is that she is weeping because of the rudeness being um, shown to Jesus Christ, the man of God. She sees someone who treated her differently. Perhaps it is something like this. For the first time in her life, a man has made her feel clean instead of dirty. For the first time in her life, she can walk into the Pharisee's house and say, no matter what anyone else may say, that man, Jesus, has set me free from what I was and what I did. She could walk past the looks and the labels and was able to respond in love for the, to the one who had changed her forever, Jesus. She's a different woman. The rules of hospitality in the Middle East are expected to be followed no matter what level of society you're in. There are certain things that you do. And the number one rule is to make your guest welcome by providing water to wash their feet as they enter your house. Now, to see the backstory, this goes all the way back to Abraham. Turn it in your Bibles if, if you have your Bible with you or on your phone or whatever device you may have. And turn to Genesis chapter 18. We're going to see the backstory of hospitality that was the expectation of the Jewish people. Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. Now, remember the context. The Lord has appeared here. So one of these three is the Lord himself. It is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ and two angels. That's what's going on. Abraham looked up, verse 2, and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He humbled himself. And he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, uh, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. This set the stage for all the rest of Jewish culture and society that this is how you are to practice hospitality. And, and not only are you to practice it, but the reason why you are to practice it in this way is because you too may one day be visited by God himself. A stranger may come into your house, and it could be an angel, 
could just be another person, another human, but it could be God coming to give, to, to, to visit with you. That's the understanding that's here. And so they had very strict rules about how you were to be hospitable. This is why the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament affirms the same thing. He says this in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. You see, the New Testament is commenting on the practice and expectation of the Old Testament. Abraham offered hospitality because God came to visit him. Therefore, if you did not treat a stranger coming into your home with genuine hospitality, you were taking an incredible risk. You were breaking the laws of culture and society, but also you were potentially offending God which is exactly what happens. See the contrast between what Abraham did when Jesus Christ, before his incarnation, comes and visits him? The first thing he does is he goes out and he brings water to wash his feet. He wants him to be refreshed. He brings food. He he goes and prepares an incredible meal because he wants to show his love and his hospitality to the Lord. Simon has the same opportunity But instead, he offers no water to wash Jesus' feet, as we heard in the scripture. He does not give him a kiss of greeting. He does not do anything that makes him feel welcome whatsoever. He offends him. And if we could put ourselves into that culture, we would see how great of an offense it is. The woman whose label was sinner saw that Jesus is being humiliated, and she begins to cry, to weep. The woman sees Jesus has been insulted, and perhaps her previous encounter with Jesus, which is not recorded, made her really wonder, had God visited this house today and everyone else was unaware? Because of the love in her heart, she cannot allow this shame to go unanswered. She has to step up and show hospitality, to show honor to Jesus. There's a great book that gives some commentary on this by Kenneth Bailey called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Here's what he says about this particular passage. Her acts are not random, nor are they entirely premeditated. We are told that she brought the perfume with her probably planning to anoint his hands and head. She did not plan to wash his hands and feet. She brought neither water nor a towel. She must have assumed that the host would extend the traditional courtesies to all his guests. He didn't. And that's a contrast we need to make here. Chances are everyone else there at the house, their feet had been washed. They had been greeted with a kiss. All of his friends, but Jesus is singled out and is insulted coming into the house. She must have assumed that the host would extend the traditional courtesies to all his guests, but he didn't. And her game plan fell apart as a result. What could she do now? 
After reclining, Jesus' hands and head were no longer available to her. So suddenly she had to make a decision. The host refused to be courteous. Very well. She will compensate for his rudeness and offer the courtesies herself. But if she asks for water, they will not give it to her because they want Jesus to be humiliated. Angry over the rudeness Jesus has just endured and frustrated at her powerlessness to do anything about it, she begins to weep. And suddenly, the light dawns. That's it. Her tears, her tears, she will wash his feet with her tears. Only someone who had been given, forgiven much and therefore loved much could anoint Jesus' feet as this woman did. She is in anguish seeing how he's being treated, how he's being shamed. And so she washes Jesus' feet with her tears, for she has no water. She dries Jesus' feet with her hair because she has no towel. She anoints him with perfume, for she has no oil. Now, in that culture, and at that time, no woman, not even one who practiced prostitution would let down their hair in public. In Middle Eastern society, a bride on the night of her wedding lets down her hair and allows it to be seen by her husband for the first time. It is a pledge of loyalty. So it sent a message to everyone in the house when she does this. It would have been scandalous to them. And they're all waiting to see how Jesus is going to respond to what she has done. But Jesus sees it for what it is, an act of love. Jesus is expected by Simon and the other guests to ridicule and rebuke her and to pull away, but he doesn't. Let's look what happens. Verse 40, Luke chapter 7. Jesus answered Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, which is 500 days wages. Another owed him 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Two people are indebted to the same individual. One owes 500 days wages. Another owns owes 50, but they are both equally impoverished because neither one of them can pay the debt. It is beyond their means. The difference in the debt really doesn't matter because they can't pay it. They're both in debt. And it brings forth also an illustration that when you and I are forgiven, we are not forgiven more or less. We are forgiven all or nothing. God forgives all of our sins or none of our sins because it's his grace. And in fact, the word here that's, that's translated in, in English, forgave the debt, it misses some of the power of the original language because it is actually the word kerizomai, which has the word grace right in the center of it. It means in, in Jesus' story, not only did he say, okay, the debt is canceled. No, it means he paid it. 
The lender took on the debt himself and then out of grace freely forgave the debtors. It is a picture of salvation, which is what this whole um, parable is about. Both of them are indebted with a debt they cannot pay, just as we are indebted to God because of our sin and we can never pay it back. And it doesn't matter if my debt is 500 and your debt is 50, if we can't pay it, it's an unpayable debt. That's the point Jesus is making. Simon goes on and answers in verse 43. I suppose the one who has the bigger debt forgiven, you have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turns to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now there's part of the problem with Simon because he didn't. He saw a label. He saw the brand of sin that was on her and her reputation. Jesus sees something different. For Simon, this woman is frozen in her past. All he sees is the sin and failure of her life. But Jesus sees something different. He sees something different in you and I as well. He sees her forgiveness, not her failure. And he goes on to say this. I came into your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. You see, she's not forgiven because of her love, but her love demonstrates that she had already been forgiven. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The question asked here by the other guests is incredibly important because it's, it's giving the affirmation of who is in their midst. Hospitality said that you should treat strangers with the expectation that this person could be an angel or a messenger of God, or it could be God himself coming into your home. Here, the question is pointing to an answer that says the only person who forgives sins is God himself. See, that was clearly the understanding. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 25 and 26 makes it really clear. This is God's word in Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Only God can forgive sins. It was the right question, but many of the people there, especially Simon, were unwilling to consider the answer that God had visited them. Jesus is fulfilling this scripture with this woman. He's saying, woman, you are no longer your label. 
You are forgiven. You are made brand new. You are a new creation in me. And when I see you, I don't see that label. I see you with eyes of love as a person who has been redeemed and restored to become the masterpiece I created you to be. What Jesus does in his parable, though, is he shows us the law. The first part is about about the labels, but the parable is about the law. It's about being in debt to God. And there's a beautiful summary of God's law found in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. I want us to look there. I I want to show you this as a summary of God's expectation of us when it comes to what we are to do and how we are to respond to his law. Jesus' parable is about two debtors, neither one of which who can possibly pay their debt. And ultimately, he is illustrating Simon and the woman, both in debt, one because of her outward actions, the other because of the pride-filled attitudes of his heart. Both needed forgiveness from God. And the same is true for you and I, because the brand of our sin really doesn't matter. It is all sin against God and a debt that you and I cannot pay. But the great news is God chose to pay the debt for us in Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at Matthew 6, 6. And understand, as we look at this, the purpose of God's law is to reveal our need. It's to show us that you and I do not measure up and that we need a Savior. So here's what God says in Micah chapter 6, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? In other words, what is the thing that I am to do to have a right relationship with God? And God answers that in verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do these things, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. These are God's expectations. This is the letter and the intent of the law summarized in one verse. If we were to take all the Ten Commandments and all the other rules, and we were to roll them into to one, um, one package, you, could, you can find it in two different ways. You can hide them in the great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And you can find it summarized right here in Micah 6, verse 8. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before the Lord. Do justice. Our actions should protect those who are vulnerable and hurting. We should stand in the gap for those who have no one else to stand for them. That's the intent of the law. God has a heart for justice, and God has a heart for those who are afflicted. What we see the woman do when she sees Jesus being humiliated is she sees an injustice, and she has to do something about it. So she steps in and washes Jesus' feet with her tears. The second requirement, though, in Micah 6, verse 8, is to love kindness. Our attitudes should give grace to those around us as God has given grace towards us. 
It's not just the things that we do. It is also the attitude of our heart. And we're to walk humbly, remembering we are always, always in God's shadow. Now, here's the problem. In our sinful nature, we like to reverse these and turn them upside down. In our pride, we like to puff ourselves up because we say we love justice, but we rarely sacrifice anything to serve those who are actually hurting, shamed, or abused. Too often we say we love justice, we believe in justice, but we don't do anything about it. And our actions prove that we really don't love it. On the other hand, we like to occasionally do acts of kindness so that others may see how good we are. But it's not a reflection of our heart. It is simply an attempt to make ourselves look good. To love kindness is to cherish the love and grace of God towards us and others. The word used here, kindness, is an incredible um, Hebrew word, hased. It's the equivalent, if you've studied much and been in church a long time, it's the equivalent of the New Testament word agape. It means an unconditional covenant love where one person takes upon themselves all the responsibility to love. It is a picture of God's love towards us. We are to love God's unconditional love towards us and others. That's what he's saying when he says love kindness. In fact, the way you'll see it often translated in English, the word hased is loving kindness. It's the heart of God towards us. And thirdly, we like to, instead of walking humbly, we like to walk proudly before others because we want them to see how good we are. That's the problem with Simon. He's prideful. So you have law-breaking sinners. The woman's past actions revealed her need. But the woman's acts of kindness and justice revealed the transformation of God's forgiveness that had already happened to her. Then you have law-behaving sinners, ones that look good on the outside. But Simon's attitude revealed his sinful heart and his need for forgiveness. Both of them had broken the intent and spirit of God's law, of his commands. We need to recognize that our respectable sins, like gossip, judging others, the things that are oftentimes just within our spirit, can be some of the most dangerous sins to us spiritually because they push our hearts farther and farther away from God. In Simon's mind, he was a little sinner. He hadn't done much, especially in comparison with this woman. But you see, that's only true if the sins of the Spirit are somehow less than the sins of the flesh. And God's Word is very clear. In fact, it is emphatic that they are not. When we look at the sins that God hates, he tells us in Proverbs, most of them listed are ones that others would not see initially because they are sins within our own heart and attitude. Both Simon and the unnamed woman were debtors with a debt they could not pay. But what distinguished them from one another was pride and humility. The woman humbled herself and received the forgiveness she knew she needed. Simon, on the other hand, 
was prideful and was for looking for a way to humiliate Jesus. C.S. Lewis has said very poignantly, prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, the greedy, the self-righteous are in that danger. Well, that's the painful labels. That's the purpose of the law. And then thirdly, we have the perfume of love. This is a pattern and a response to God that we are to follow. We're to see the example of this woman and say, that's how I want to live. That's the love that I want to have and express for God by doing acts of service, by loving kindness and walking humbly. The woman responded to Jesus' forgiveness with a risk-taking love and with gratitude. Her love was observable. And when we practice an observable love, it will affect other people. When it's genuine from our, from our heart, it will spread through the room like the perfume that she was using to, uh, to put on Jesus' feet. Those observable acts of love, of authentic, caring, are transformational. And they will not only impact the one that they're given to, but people all around. Her love was a response to pure grace and it stimulated gratitude in her heart and, it, and she had to do something about it. There's, there's a great line, I don't usually quote a lot of movies, but there's a great line in the movie Interstellar. It says this, love isn't something we invented. It's observable, powerful. It has to mean something. Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends the dimensions of time and space. That is so true because love emanates from God. That's the reason why it's not limited to time and space. We can love people on the other side of the planet. We can care about them. We don't have to even be in their presence. It's transformative. It changes us because it comes from God. So how did this woman practice love? And what are the things that we can do, that we can give to God? I want to give you a few things to help you get started in practicing love, the perfume of love. There are three things, according to the scripture, that we can give to God that produce a perfume, a fragrance of love that will bless God and bless others. We can give, first of all, our love, our care, our heart to the Lord. This is what we see in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Our love is a fragrant offering to God. Listen to what it says. Follow God's example or be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. And walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When we have a sacrificial love that is demonstrated by caring for others and in a way that costs us something genuinely, it's like sending up a perfume to the Lord that is incredibly pleasing to him. It follows the pattern of what Jesus has done for us. He gave his life for us. His grace was a fragrant offering. 
Also, we can give our trust to Jesus Christ. Our trust is expressed in our prayers. One of the reasons why God asks us to pray about things, one of the reasons why we should never look at that and say, well, if God knows exactly what he's going to do, why pray? One of the reasons is, is because our prayer itself is an offering to God. It is an act of worship. And one of the, the greatest answers to that question, if God knows everything, if things are planned out, if he is absolutely in control, why pray? Well, the scripture tells you that God knows the day, um, the day that you will die. All your days have been numbered. So I just have one question for you. Why do you eat? Why do you breathe? Just quit it. You're not going to die until God says you're going to die, so you don't have to breathe. Don't worry about it. We're created to do it. The same thing with prayer. We're designed to do it. It's how God made us to work. And this is what he says about our prayers. It's so beautiful in Revelation chapter 5. He came and took the scroll. This is a picture of Jesus who's being worshipped. This is what he says. Jesus came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, before Jesus. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. God collects our prayers and makes them an incense that goes up before his throne continually. They sang a new song, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God, for God from every tribe Every language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Our prayers are an offering. Our trust is an offering. Finally, our gratitude is an offering to the Lord. And this is what this woman did. She offered her gratitude. Psalm 141.2 says, May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. This woman showed us how to love in all that she did. And it's a fragrance that is beautiful. She practiced her gratitude. Tozer, A.W. Tozer put it this way, gratitude is an offering precious in the sight of God and it is one that the poorest of us can make and not be poorer, but richer for having made it. Well, I put in your notes some practical prompts about ways to practice gratitude, ways to follow the example of, of this woman who out of love, because she had been forgiven, was transformed. And that's my challenge to each of us. Let us be like her. Let's follow her example and show that kind of love, that kind of trust, that kind of gratitude to God by loving the people around us and by offering ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. Ask God to examine your actions and your attitudes, to show us the reality of our sins so that we can confess it to him, we can receive his forgiveness, and we can go out and live a life that shows a love for God that will impact those around us. Dear Heavenly Father,
Thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your truth. Thank you for the example of this, of this woman because she is a picture of all of us. We may have different labels, but the truth is we have the same debt, a debt of sin that we could never pay. But you paid it for us. You forgave us. Lord, thank you for that gift of grace. It should give us every reason to celebrate you with all that we are and to live our life for you. Oh, Lord, would you make its reality sink deep down into our hearts and fill us, Lord, with overflowing joy. Help us to live as the forgiven, to celebrate what you have done, to not be ashamed of what others say about us, but to be prompted out of love to point others to the reality that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, Lord, do a work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.